0: This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Listeners, I'm sorry, it appears to be just me this time. I suppose you've put up with Trev and you've put up with Tom being on their own recently, and now I'm afraid you have an episode with just me. Exciting, isn't it? you'll be pleased to know we did actually plan this and I'm not going to be in the caravan completely on my own this episode. We're going to have one or two visitors popping in later on and I'm going to be talking about the recent Thomas Brewster trilogy released by Big Finish. This particular trilogy consists of three plays, The Crimes of Thomas Brewster, The Feast of Axos, and Industrial Revolution. Those are the three titles of the plays, and they feature The Sixth Doctor and Evelyn, and it's been quite a while since we've seen Evelyn start in a trilogy of plays. She made a brief return, a very pivotal but brief return, in Death of the Family Ooh, last year, I think that was now, but uh, yeah, Evelyn Maggie Stables has been missed from the big finish main range, uh, at least by me anyway. And I was looking forward to these these three plays. We've also got an interview with one of the stars of these plays. That's Bernard Holly from The Feast of Axos. And for those of you who don't recognise his name instantly, Bernard actually starred with both Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee during their televised runs of Doctor Who. And it's always fascinating to sit down and just talk about how Doctor Who was made in the 60s and 70s, and Bernard didn't disappoint, so you've got that to look forward to soon. But before we get stuck into that interview, I'm going to talk you through the first play called The Crimes of Thomas Brewster. Doctor Who, The Crimes of Thomas Brewster.
1: Latest news on Japanese toy robot terror. Read all about it. Yes, we've just spotted them now. Yeah, heading west in a high-speed patrol boat. Doctor, what is it? Some sort of giant robot mosquito, by the look of it. Evelyn, watch out! Oh, that was close. Seems to have singled oh. us out for attention. Careful, get down. Hey. They're swerving all over the place. Either the driver's is intoxicated or, uh, hang about, there's something going after them. We can't even make a quiet visit to the Tower of London without being zapped at by an alien robot bug. The patrol bus has been completely destroyed. Oh, my life, Doctor. Brewster. I might have known, once a cut purse, always a cut purse. Which is why you stole the high-speed patrol boat. Borrowed. You didn't exactly leave it, in the condition that you found it. Not my fault. I don't recall telling you my name. In fact, I don't recall you telling me your name. You don't know who I am. No, I'm sorry, you have me at a disadvantage. Detective Inspector Patricia Menzies? It's half a dozen of them, attacking the top of the building,
0: firing these laser-beam things!
1: We can barely see. There's there's so many of them, and the noise is just... We're hit! Then the doctor's plan has failed. These things have won. Everyone on this planet, they're all going to die. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. The
0: Crimes of Thomas Brewster. Now, the character of Thomas Brewster was created especially for Big Finish and he first appeared in The Haunting of Thomas Brewster. And that was released a couple of years or so ago now. And he's been in seven other Big Finish main range plays since. But to my mind, there hasn't actually been a better play than his first one. Somewhere along the line, a decision was taken to bring back the character time and time again, and I'm not entirely certain why. He's not an incredibly interesting character. The reason he was brought back, I believe, was because The Haunting of Thomas Brewster was an amazing story. It was very well received amongst fandom. And I think people seem to think that it was his character that fans latched onto, and I'm not entirely convinced that's the case. This particular story, though, sees the beginning of the end for Thomas Brewster, at least in terms of the big finish lineage anyway. It's written by Jonathan Morris, who has written loads of Big Finish plays in the past, some really, really good ones. And if you like, I think he's very, very close to Stephen Moffat in terms of the way that he tells his stories. And therefore, it's no real surprise that he's been brought in to write the third story to feature another returning character, D.I. Menzies, played by Anna Hope, who has starred in two previous Big Finish plays. And she, if you like, is the river song for Big Finish. The doctor meets her out of order. And we didn't know this was going to be the case until this particular play. So, again, Jonathan Morris' writing style fits this this particular story perfectly. Now, Big Finish always used to be extremely careful in terms of how they told stories. You know, the the audio medium is very different to watching Sun and Con television. You've got to be very careful not to just... Info dump or give characters huge amounts of exposition just for the benefit of the of the listener and in fact, I would say at the beginning of the range, they went out of their way to tell stories that could only be told using the audio medium. Now, the crimes of Thomas Brewster kind of suffers a little bit because big Finish do fall into the trap of explaining things. And you have two characters in a scene, one of them explains to the other one what they can see. And that's a little bit clumsy for Big Finish and very unusual, I have to say. But does it spoil this particular story? Fortunately, no, it doesn't. It's just something that, for me, as a long-time listener to Big Finish, I was a little surprised to hear someone describing, in the opening scene really, what was going on in a very James Bond-esque style opening It's also a little bit of mm, action purely for having actions sake now let me give you an example the doctor and Evelyn are in a speedboat along the Thames and a bomb gets dropped in the boat now rather than drop the bomb in the river and drive away from it the doctor and Evelyn decide to leave the bomb in the boat and jump overboard and swim to the shore Now, (laughs) bearing in mind Evelyn's character, he's meant to be mid-60s, it didn't really ring true and was completely unnecessary. So, yes, it was an interesting and entertaining opening, but a little bit confusing in terms of the decisions the characters took. But, uh, But that aside, this story is a reasonably strong entry, and it's a particularly rewarding story for those who have heard... The previous two stories that have featured Di Menzies, those being the Raincloud Man and the Condemned, which came out a couple of years ago. This particular story is also notable because it introduces a character who is set to return to Big Finish. There's a character called Flip Jackson. Now, Flip apparently is short for Philippa. I'm not quite sure what it is with Big Finish in terms of having to have an abbreviated companion's name Uh, but yes the character I have to say is not particularly memorable from this play and you have to assume that Lisa Greenwood the actress created a very good impression on Big Finish in order for them to invite her back because I doubt if it was on the strength of her performance in this story. The story itself is a bit of a heist. Someone is posing as the Doctor and running a criminal racket. Of course, that turns out to be Thomas Brewster, and it's the first time that the Sixth Doctor has actually met Thomas Brewster. And it's an interesting ride, in more ways than one. Um, one particular memorable scene is a tube train going through some kind of transtemporal portal and ending up on a foreign alien planet which is an interesting concept and it does actually work quite well Uh, the soundscape is extremely well managed in this story so yeah very good one last comment about the casting david troughton appears as the character raymond gallagher and unfortunately for me david troughton who's made several appearances in big finish plays is instantly recognisable, not just because he has such a distinct voice, but because he sounds so much like his father, Patrick Trouton, and why Big Finish don't try and use his audio talents to have full cast second Doctor Stories uh, is, is completely beyond me because he's basically done that for the BBC. So that would be a fantastic opportunity. I love his acting. He's an extremely strong actor. His performance is very good, but he is so distinct. In terms of his voice, it's a little bit of a shame for me. Now, moving on to the second play, The Feast of Axos.
1: Axos calling Earth. Fuel system exhausted. Request immediate assistance. Immediate assistance. Axos calling Earth. Fuel system exhausted. Request immediate assistance. Immediate assistance.
2: Mission control to spaceship Windermere. You are go
0: for burn.
1: I can't believe it. We're in space. We're actually in space. And there uh, she is. Huge. And so... Alien? Doctor? Where's it coming from? The Time Vortex. Someone is playing around with time technology. Another Time Lord? is a parasitic organism uh, drifting from planet to planet to suck their energy dry, called Axos. OK, we're on our own, kids. Axos calling Earth. Fuel system exhausted. Request immediate assistance. Immediate assistance. Axos... This play was
0: written by Mike Maddox, who, out of the three authors of these trilogies, has written the fewest big finishes. Legend of the Cyberman being one, and he co-wrote Circular Time with Paul Cornell. It's a really, really good fan reaction. Now, of course, this play features Axos from the third Doctor's era, and this particular story for me has a massive impact. Third Doctor atmosphere, it feels like a John Pertwee story. For people like me who've got quite strong memories of watching The Third Doctor on television, it's quite a nostalgic ride as well for a number of reasons. One, just because the sprawling nature of the story it's told over... All of the action takes place pretty much in space and on Axos, believe it or not. Those of you who remember what happened to Axos in the Claws of Axos would appreciate that particular part of the story more than others. And it is quite continuity heavy. For me, it was the best story of the three. It's got some wonderful emotive moments with Evelyn. And I think it's the end of episode two almost had me in tears because it was so brilliantly played between Maggie Stables and Colin Baker. One of the things Russell T. Davis is noted for is, is contrast in scenes. So, in other words, you can have one scene that will have you laughing, followed by a scene that will have you in tears. And this story very much mirrors that. Absolutely with Evelyn, every step of the way, when she starts spacewalking, it's so funny. And by the end of that particular episode, you're crying. I won't give that particular cliffhanger away, but I will say it's one of the most memorable cliffhangers that Big Finish have ever done. The other major thing to note here is the return of Mr Bernard Holly, who played, I think he was credited as Axon Man back in 1971 in The claws of Axos. This story features the return of Bernard. Into his original role of Axos, he plays the voice of Axos. And this is what he had to say about his time working with Patrick Troughton, John Pertwee, Colin Baker and even Sylvester McCoy. I now have the great pleasure of being joined by Mr Bernard Holly, who has got a little bit of pedigree where it comes to Doctor Who. First of all, Bernard, welcome to the Doctor Who podcast. Thank you very much. You first found fame, if you like, or you first became associated uh, with Doctor Who by winning the role of Peter Hayden in Tomb of the Cybermen in 1967.
1: That's right, that's a long time ago. As I've often said to uh, to other people who have asked me about it, is that it was a relatively small part. It was one of my first television jobs, well, I think it was the second television job I'd ever done. And it was, at the time, it was just a job that I went in. I was delighted. I was, you know, it was a bit of money, and it was working on television, which was fantastic. But not in a million years did I ever think that it was going to... The Doctor Who was going to turn into the kind of international phenomenon that it is now. Uh, it, it was just extraordinary. So that the memories are uh, uh, fairly thin. I remember the gravel pits where we filmed <laughs> the the exterior sequences, and I remember working with that lovely cast, and they were lovely. You know, they were, you Pat Traum's just a lovely bloke and so a Fraser I still see occasionally I go occasionally to conventions and uh, Debbie I met at a convention just recently seeing her again you know after god knows <laughs> how long was extraordinary.
0: What was it like working with Patrick Trouta? He
1: was an old pro I, I, I think everybody knows what I mean by that that he'd he, he, he he'd be there do the job and he'd, he'd always know the lines and need to have a laugh and then get on with it you know and just get on with it and a nice guy you could sit and chat to him afterwards um, and also it was a there was an interesting historical note about the tomb of the cybermen. Was that it was um, it was at the time of the Yom Kippur War, 1967. I hope I got the description right in Israel. And uh, <clears throat> there was a, a couple of the cast were Jewish, and they were uh, so there was a, around the atmosphere of the set. There was a, a, a bit of concern about what for them of what was happening away in the Middle East. Mm. So it, was, it has a kind of historical connection for me as well. Remembering no, both sure. those things.
0: So interesting dynamic on set, perhaps.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was never overwhelming, but it's uh, it was always something that, that the two actors, in particular, were were, uh, mm. were concerned about. On the time I was with them,
0: did you get to spend much time just talking to to Patrick or uh, or, or Fraser? Not Patrick
1: which... so much because he's a, the doctor who is always the busiest, isn't he? Although in the scenes that that I had with Fraser and with with Patrick, they were all you know all of us were busy. Um, but I did with Fraser, and, and we've carried on that kind of relationship ever since. I, mm-hmm. I didn't see Pat Rounton at all after, after I finished. Before he, I don't, can't remember the year he died. Eighty-seven was it? Yeah. So I didn't see him. Well, that was twenty, twenty years. Yeah, twenty years after. Uh, we worked mm. together and I, I didn't see him again. But Fraser always seemed to crop up because we used to have these glorious television days where you'd work at the what we called the Acton Hilton. I don't know if you've heard about the Acton Hilton. It's a big rehearsal block in Acton when, when we used to get rehearsals for programmes, which we don't get nowadays. No. Um, and um, so I met all the actors there, but Pat Trapp wasn't one I, for some reason, didn't run into after. But at the time, he was very nice to talk to, very charming, and sometimes I say that when looking at it now, looking at it, there's this young bloke, because I was young, <laughs> and it all, it's almost, because I didn't know much about television, it's almost like I was an outs- outsider looking in on it, looking in on myself, you know, <laughs> especially in the scenes in the gravel pits where I had I had very little to say. When I got round to the scenes, I thought I felt a bit, a bit more that I was part of the scene.
0: So what's it like when you look back at that episode now? Because I, I know that you've recently undertaken a commentary for episode yeah, one yeah. Um, for a re-release of, right, yeah. of two. And what was it like sitting down and watching your performance then?
1: Well, I've seen it over the years, of course, because when it suddenly resurfaced, I can't remember what year it resurfaced. Was it 19? That was 1992, I believe. 1992. But when that first surfaced, I didn't see it immediately. And I gather there was some kind of release party at BAFTA, which I didn't get invited to. And when I eventually did see it, I thought it was extraordinary. What did I think of it? That's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, it's it's just, in a way, it's a different person. There's a lot younger you there mm. So every little thing, every nuance that you say of of a word you think is wrong, it makes you shudder a bit, you know. But you, we're so self-critical, and you know what it's like when you're. You know what it's like when you interview somebody. You listen to it afterwards and you think, do I really sound like that? Well, you <laughs> yes. treble that or, or you quadruple that when you're watching television of you or, 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 or a film or anything of yourself, mm. because it doesn't seem to you to be like the person that you are. You know, you sound different, you look different.
0: Well, I think you probably get a completely different perspective when you watch that story to anybody else at all watching it. And of course. Um, I mean, you must, you must take some comfort in the fact that the story is so well regarded by fans.
1: And um, I'm right in saying that you didn't survive very long. I was killed at the end of episode one. And uh, I died an honourable death with steam rising out of my body. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I was on the credits of the second episode. My little, my little boy then, he' was probably about three he was in the room when that i always remember this he was in the room when that credit was running up at uh, the beginning was over my body and uh, and he said oh there's my daddy <laughs> 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 and then yeah. he used to go around saying for years he, that he had two daddies, one at home and one on television <laughs> he used to say.
0: how proud are your children that you are they've got a father in doctor who who's been <laughs> in doctor who several times
1: well I, you know my son i've only got one son and uh, he's grown up over the years and I, I think, it, I said to him once, what's it like having a father who appears regularly on television? He said, just like any other father. <laughs> I think that I don't, I don't think that children of, um, of, of actors, they don't know any different. No. So, so uh, obviously, friends used to come round occasionally, his friends used to come round occasionally and want, want things from me, like a script, especially when I was in things like The Gentle Touch, and, mm, mm. Uh, because they would all adored, that generation all adored, uh, Jill Gascoigne who played, played the lead in it. So they used to they used to like taking that stuff away but generally you know they'd met me many times I used to lark around with them and lark around with my son I was just another dad sure playing football whatever
0: See, as I think that's fascinating I really do because my yeah. dad worked for British Telecom and that wasn't very exciting <laughs> I'd much rather have had someone dress <laughs> up as a, well let's say a gold plated monster <laughs> ah. which, uh, which leads me on well to four years later in your yeah. career uh, The yeah. Claws of Axos where yeah. you played I think the technical character name is Axon Man it is yeah and uh, I'd like to start really asking you about that story by asking you what everybody wants to know and just how long were you finding bits of gold paint oh. uh, about your person uh, after you finished recording
1: well, yeah. well actually quite a long time it, <laughs> I mean, it, was, it, it was um a, it was a four-week period again everything was done differently to the way it is nowadays so it, so i was there for four weeks and every there were there was one day in the studio a week and the rest was rehearsal time or filming um and i'd have a, that full makeup put on which i wore the whole day you know while we were film, filming through the day and then getting it off afterwards it was just a nightmare i mean i don't know what it was it was just ordinary gold makeup okay you know the girls the makeup girls got it, you know got it from their usual sources but you find bits in extraordinary places like right in the very corner of your eye and then be, behind the eyelids and behind the ears oh, and goodness. everywhere
0: how long did it take to get you made up
1: uh i, I can't remember entirely but probably about an hour and a half and I, I was always the earliest it was always i remember being the first always in the makeup chair hmm.
0: yeah and you do you have to go and have your lunch in the canteen, um, dressed in gold paint? <laughs> you know,
1: uh... that's a very good question, and I simply don't remember. Oh, really? I don't remember, but I can't have done anything else but, can I really?
0: Well, unless you didn't eat the entire day, or but you maybe probably remember some, that. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> or maybe somebody brought me something down. I really Possibly. cannot remember that. Again, we're talking about a programme that, you know, by then I'd received, I, I'd, I'd done some, I'd done a considerable amount of telly and Z cards, and uh, coming back into working on in Doctor Who, again, it was a job. I never for a minute thought I'd be sitting here talking hmm. about it 40 years later. No, yeah. indeed.
0: On that shoot, of course, you had the pleasure of working with, well, sadly, three actors who are no longer with us. And, um, you know, John Pertwee, Nick Courtney, and Roger Delgado. Yeah, yeah. How's your um, memories, or what's your memories of working, let's say, with um, with John Pertwee, first? Okay. Um, he was lovely
1: with me, and we, in fact, we had a we we developed a bit of a friendship, and I went, my wife and I uh, had dinner with him occasionally. and He came to us, and so, for a little while, for around a, you know, a couple of years after it ended, we used to meet. For, mm. Not every uh, not every week, but uh, like a nice friend, you know. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, and on the set, he was generally speaking impeccably well behaved, but uh, he could have the occasional little temper tantrum. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well,
0: it's quite funny, really, because when you talk to actors who have starred in Doctor Who throughout all of the eras, obviously you have to ask the question, yeah, what's it like, like working with a yeah. lead actor? And depending on which actor it is, uh, then you get a completely different picture yeah. of, of, um, of of the actor who's playing the Doctor. I mean, William Hartnell, with and believes him to be very, very grumpy. Mm. But you listen to the people who work with him, and you don't hear that. There's right. very few people who will actually say that. So, again, John Pertwee, you hear a variety of stories. Yeah, I and do, yeah. uh, Interesting but, to hear um, your perspective on it, given that you knew him for a couple of yeah. years afterwards. With me,
1: all I, you, you can only really talk about yourself, with me he was fine. But mm. there was a little incident, I don't know if I dare talk about it, a little incident in the, in the series. The, he, he came in on the last day, I think the last day of filming, And in the dressing room, he said something like, I'm not up to this today. I can't do this today. It's not going to be a good day. And it wasn't. It was terrible. He kept fluffing and drying. And and somehow he got his mindset into it not being right for him or or whatever.
0: And did that. that affect the rest of the cast that day?
1: not as far as i can remember actors are old pros you know if, if you've done it for a few years and everybody there had i think mm. you know it's not your problem that he's having problems so we yeah. just get on with it it's throwing sometimes when your leading actor dries in the middle of a scene or whatever yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and all i can say is on the previous three weeks that we were there he was absolutely wonderful he just had a bad day you know but he seemed to predict it which was extraordinary
0: <laughs> maybe he just decided that, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know, perhaps one of his scenes required him to be slightly uncertain. Maybe, so he, just, he, maybe. he could have been you a very unique way of method acting. He could have had a row with
1: his wife. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was it like working with um, with the other actors? I mean, particularly, oh. I, mean, I, w- I want to ask you about Nicholas Courtney, especially given how recent his past. Yeah,
1: well, he was just a lovely man. I first met him in, uh, I think it was 1965, at Northampton Rep in... Shakespeare's King John um, and it was just like meeting an old friend he's such a nice man and whenever I met him wherever it was you know greeting me like we you know and we we hardly ever saw each other It was just a, occasionally up at, up at that again at that the Acton the Acton, the Acton rehearsal rooms BBC rehearsal rooms mm-hmm. or uh, a convention I met him on once and he's just a lovely and recently just before he died Walking down the down Park Lane, and suddenly he was there in front of me. Really, <laughs> and it was always like just like you know, it was, it was just like we'd known each other forever, and it was quick catch up, and then you're mm. on your way. Just a very, very nice man. Everybody must say that.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think I've heard one no. bad view of no, Nick no, Colton. He's just and a very um, nice man. I'm
1: interested, certainly, when you
0: compare the two experiences uh, that you've had, you know, to date that we've discussed in the interview, um, you've got a relatively small regular cast in Tomb of the Cybermen, but in Claws of Axos, you had a much bigger regular cast, Mm. and the unit family, if you like, had really found its feet by then, Mm. and... Was it any different as a supporting actor going into a show on that basis?
1: I think the only thing, the, the, the difference was, as far as I was concerned, it, it was that it was I was being offered a, n- a very nice part in, in, in a very, very popular programme. I didn't feel that Doctor Who at the time I did it in 1967 was was as popular. I mean, maybe I was, I'm was. wrong about that. Maybe it did have huge viewing figures. I just wasn't aware of it.
0: I think it had become more successful but by the time you started That's John what it, felt like. Story, it yeah. felt like. It felt like I was
1: doing something that I could proudly say to my friends I'm going into mm. Doctor Who again to do. Um, and in a way, it was quite a surprise in those days because it's not like now where they seem to cast everything on television from last week's Radio Times. So you see the same people all the time. Hmm. Uh, then they, they, they did give opportunities to people um, who hadn't been on telly before. They, they tried people out. But also, that because I've been in said cars, they, um, quite, people said to me, one or two producers said to me, won't be able to use you for a couple of years. So in a way, it was quite surprising to get into Doctor Who because I was a recognisable face from something else. But. Because of the makeup, of course, I wasn't that recognisable. Well,
0: you could have turned up in Doctor Who for the following story yeah, yourself, right. and no yeah, one would have right. known. No, they could know. have no, got true. some more out of that's the contract, true, yeah. perhaps. Mm. But uh, but it's funny you you, you mention how Doctor Who has kind of established itself and worked its way into the culture now, mm. and uh, with the big finishes being made as well, and they've they've been made for over ten years now. It was only a matter of time before they decided <laughs> to, to bring back Exos. And I think it's brilliant that they asked you to yeah. come back and reprise your role. I mean, how, how did that you feel know, when you got the call?
1: Well, it, was, it, my, it, came, it came through my voiceover agent rather than my actual agent, which I suppose is fair enough. It didn't make much difference. But I didn't know what it was. Are you free for this two days' work for you? And they didn't tell me what it was. <laughs> and I was away. I was on holiday in Greece or somewhere. Um, when I got the first call, and um, so I said, yeah, I'm I'm fine, you know, I'll do the details when I go back. When I got back, I suddenly discovered that it was Doctor Who again. I couldn't, kind of couldn't believe it. And I said, well, well, what am I doing? She said, something you played before, she said. I said, what? (laughs) She said, somebody, something called Axos? She said, she didn't know. She's a youngster, you see, you know, working in an office, you know, working as an agent's assistant. Um, so that's how I heard about it, and of course I was just absolutely thrilled, and I thought, why do they ask me? I, nobody came to me as a Nick, Nick, Nicholas Briggs or, or um, David Rich, and they didn't come to me and say, uh, can, we, can you just speak to us? We want to know whether you sound the same or not, you know, because I, you know, voices can change in 40 years, absolutely. can't they? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. And
1: um, yeah. so the, I, I didn't know, and they didn't know, that all the, everybody I read about saying I sound exactly the same as I did 40 years ago, which is which, which, to me, well, you, you, I thought that would be all right, but they didn't know, did they? Well, so they took a bit of a chance.
0: Well, perhaps, but yeah. it certainly worked, yeah. and you can do wonders with technology. And the thing it's is, true. because they're making Doctor Who for fans, and much more so than like, the casual viewers, the current production team yeah. are doing for telly, then they will know the fans would have checked to see who played Axos. Of and, of course, Bernard Holly, they're going to recognise yeah. you. And... Uh, even if you weren't recognisable which you are Mm. um, then they would have appreciated it on a different level yeah I think
1: think that's right mm.
0: did you get to record on the same days as Colin Baker oh yeah oh you were so you you had a chat with him I've known him for years
1: um, he he first he came to uh, one of our we used to have very extravagant New Year's Eve parties. No longer too much like hard work. And he he came to a couple over the years, and so I've known him just an actor. bought before he was in Doctor Who, mm. an actor I bumped into again a bit like Nick. I bump into occasionally here and there. Um, yeah, he was fine. He was great. He was very nice. He's a nice nice guy. All
0: right, notwithstanding your um, appearance on Eureka with Sylvester McCoy, you've worked with three doctors in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm giving you a complete choice now. Who would you like to work with? Out of the remaining doctors, Uh, Fantasyland. So there's no boundaries here.
1: Right, okay. Obviously, Matt Smith, because I want to do a new one. (laughs) (laughs) I thought
0: you might say that.
1: (laughs) But uh, but certainly
0: in terms of... I don't know you you you've got so many choices of different kinds of eras of Doctor Who now, and I think Axos would work really well in anything and i would I do think it would work certainly in modern day Doctor Who,
1: but I don't think they could do that with me though why'd you say that well they could I could do it vocally, but i'm not i don't quite look you know with that. The chin, you know the, the the chins have doubled since nineteen seventy one.
0: Well, yes, but perhaps if if you look at the kind of um, story they told in Feast of Axos, I mean that in a way, apart, I know it's on audio, but it bears no resemblance to Claws of Axos because no, it's, it's epic. True. It's yeah. got some kind of. Um, you know, it's space opera feel to it. Yeah. Um, it's quite emotional in some parts, mm. uh, which is much more in line with the modern series. But certainly, I mean, you look at the most recent episode of Doctor Who. You've just had um, Martin Sheen do a voiceover, oh, so oh, yes, it's oh, it's right. it's not. Oh, no, so... well, I mean, I wouldn't mind doing that, and
1: that would be great. I don't mind just doing the voice of Exhaust. I like I like one of the 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 um, one of the people that wrote stuff on the internet said that perhaps it, the, the next should be called the dessert of axos after the feast of axos the dessert of axos i thought it was quite clever
0: no not bad yes yeah, so i can just try and work out a four course menu perhaps <laughs> yeah, you, you know that gives you at least yeah. four uh, a <laughs> yeah. well it, it, it's been fascinating speaking to you just very very briefly about your time in doctor who but the last question i'd like to ask you is is what's next for you what are you planning to do now
1: the really most immediate thing it's on the 8th of June, I'm off on holiday to Greece. <laughs> ah,
0: wonderful. Sounds good. Well, have a wonderful time. We will. will. Thank you very much for your time,
1: Bernard. Absolutely, my pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview
0: with Bernard. Uh, for me, as I said earlier, it's fantastic speaking to people who've got reasonably clear and vivid memories of working with John Pertwee, Roger Delgado, Nicholas Courtney. Uh, it's just really good hearing how, well, how television was made and also, you know how people that fans these days consider to be heroes really were just jobbing actors they weren't necessarily aware of the fact that they were starring in what would go on to become a british institution and uh, and these days it's becoming international institution phenomenal stuff <laughs> Moving on to the final story in this trilogy, that's called Industrial Evolution, and it was written by one of my favourite writers uh, that Big Finish used. a chap called Eddie Robson, and he's written, again, far too many Big Finish stories to, to list, but one that really does stand out in my mind was Human Resources, and that was the climax to the very first Eighth Doctor and Lucy series. That particular story remains one of my favourite ever told. And it's therefore a little bit of a shame that I have to say that this, I think, is Eddie's poorest script for Big Finish. I certainly didn't enjoy this anywhere near as much as I was expecting
2: to. My darling daughter, please, sit beside me on the grass.
1: Father, Shh, what... my dear. Listen. Listen. Can't you hear it? Hear what? The death knell of the Industrial Revolution.
3: Did you know these factories have more accidents than any other in Lancashire? Really? Mr.
2: Townsend, you haven't seen Mr. Gibson, have you? No, I haven't. Why? The machines are not involved, Miss Stretton. No one's seen them since he went down to the cellar. That was six hours ago. They are of the
3: latest design of the highest quality manufacture, and were acquired by Mr. Belfridge at great personal expense. What's that? The pipes. There's something in the pipes. Everyone's got to get out of here.
1: Oh, he's coming already. He Must have heard the disturbance. Oh,
3: that's quite a stroke of luck, isn't it? Oh, well, maybe it's not. What's happened?
1: Awkward situations are the Doctor's bread and
2: butter. Oh, no, Doctor. You've had your chance. Now get out of my way or I'll shoot.
1: This process is evolving towards ever more advanced technology, but it seems benign. Steven, the machines! They're running by themselves! This situation is rapidly getting out of hand. They should be fixing the floor. Not anymore, they're not. No, no, this is not the way. It's like. it's like they're alive. This way, we can escape through the cellars. Can you just hear me? There's a monster down there. But that's impossible. I'm getting out of here. No!
0: But the reasons why I didn't like this, I'm not entirely certain it is down completely to the writing. First of all, it is so loud. You can't listen to this particular story on earphones without coming away with a headache. It's set in the Industrial Revolution, yes, but my goodness, it's clanky, it's loud, it really is very, very grating at times. You just really want there to be a quiet scene so that you can give your ears a bit of a rest and... They do appear every now and again, but nowhere near as frequently enough for me. The other reason as to why I don't think I like this story very much is because of the central concept, which really isn't very original. It's essentially all about machines becoming sentient. And for me, that's been done to death. It's it's not an original concept. It feels a little bit like Skynet from Terminator, but just set in the Industrial Revolution times, possibly Universal Soldier in certain ways. And actually, Big Finish has tackled this subject matter before itself, certainly in Exiles Decays. And I just don't really feel there's a great amount left to explore. Um, I would say, let's leave this concept. And And I think if they choose another story where machines suddenly develop a heart and feelings and are just basically misunderstood, then I think it will be one story too many. Indeed, I think perhaps industrial evolution is that one story too many. The emotional scenes don't particularly ring true in this story either which is a bit of a shame and they are quite protracted you know thomas brewster is supposed to be realizing that some of his actions do result in some fairly cataclysmic consequences for the people he interacts with and yeah i i realized that those scenes were supposed to be particularly interesting and pivotal but they didn't affect me i wasn't emotionally invested i've never really been emotionally invested in thomas brewster and they kind of just washed over me. And certainly towards the end of episode four, I'd really lost interest in this story. And it's, it's a bit of a disappointment. But one of the things that is becoming quite a common thing for me is that the third play in these trilogies are being a bit of a letdown all the way since Legends of the Cybermen. Uh, Since then we've had Cradle of the Snake, Lurkers at Sunlight's Edge and now Industrial Evolution. All disappointing slightly. Um, Don't get me wrong, Lurkers was particularly offensive for me. That was one play that I don't think should ever have actually been recorded. Um, And I, I, I wouldn't say that about Industrial Evolution. I would just say that it's a little bit tired. But I am disappointed that it's been a long while since I've had a satisfactory conclusion to one of these little mini-series. But on the whole, this little trilogy is better than average. Jonathan Morris and Mike Maddox stories are certainly very, very listenable and they're quite accessible as well if you're an avid Big Finish listener you may have a little more difficulty if you just pick these plays up fresh, having no idea of Thomas Brewster's history or indeed the Axon story from John Pertwee's era.
3: <laughs>
0: I mentioned at the outset that I wasn't going to be the only voice in the caravan this time. You've already had Bernard Holly join me. Now I'm going to make an exit. And I'm going to make way for Luke from the Minute Doctor Who podcast, who represented the Doctor Who podcast at the recent convention Big Finish Day. And he was able to talk to Jonathan Morris, who was the author of the first story in this review, that was The Crimes of Thomas Brewster, about Big Finish in general, his writing experience, what plans he's got for the future and basically what it's like to be a writer of Doctor Who stories and for me I found this particular interview very very interesting. Luke also recorded a whole load of other interviews that you're going to be hearing at various points on future Doctor Who podcasts but we're going to play this one first so over to you Luke who's joined by Jonathan.
2: Um, So, yes, so Johnny Morris, um, you are a writer for Big Finish, amongst other things, obviously, here at Big Finish Day. How did you get into writing for Big Finish?
3: Uh, It's a long time ago, and because it's a long time ago, I can't quite remember, but I can remember what I I said the last time I was asked that question, (laughs) which is um, I'd written a, a proposal for a Doctor Who book, which became Festival of Death, Yep. And that was read by a person who worked at the BBC called Jack Rayner, who um, said nice things about it to Gary Russell, who I think I sort of knew to say hello to at the time, or maybe not. Um, and he, and I'd also written bits of radio, and so he very um, adventurously and decided to uh, commission me to write a rock story, when I didn't have much of a track record. He was sort of. Going out on a limb, just using at the time an untried author, which I think was um, very courageous.
2: What was your first script then? Was that Blood Tide? Blood Tide was, that Bloodtide? Bloodtide was yeah. the
3: first one, yes, way back in 1999 or 2000.
2: 1990, yeah. So, what was it like to, to be the guy that brought the Silurians back?
3: I, well, I wasn't a particular fan of the Silurians. It wasn't like a burning ambition of mine um, because it was part of the brief. Yeah. The story was to bring back the sea devils and the Slurians, and I managed to persuade Gary that the Slurians on their own would be, would be, far, would be enough yeah. because the sea devils talk very slow yeah. and so it was interesting because um, my sort of addition to the story was to bring the whole evolution and Charles Darwin aspect to it but with the Slurians, the whole their story is that they were here on earth before humanity and they want it back yeah. and so I think inevitably you're going to end up telling a story along those lines again. Yes. Yeah. And I can, I can see why people criticise the story for telling that story again, but if, t- if you've got the scenarios, that's the story, that's the story yeah. you should tell. Yeah, really.
2: yeah. And so from there, how many big finishes have you now done?
3: Uh, I haven't lost track. I think it's probably about more than 10. Okay. <laughs> Someone's listening to this, he's probably worked it out and gone, 10? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's about... Yeah. It might be 20, but I think it's about 10.
2: Um, and what, what keeps them... Coming back to commission you, what keeps you coming back to write write the stories?
3: Um, I I imagine that the only reason they don't go back and commission anyone is because they think they they like their work and I try my best to edit it in on time and for the right in sort of suitable formats, the right length, um, the right number of characters, the right stage directions, and are um, quite cheap. That helps <laughs> and. The other thing is sometimes other things fall through and they need things done very quickly. And I've shown in the past that when it comes when push comes to shove, I can deliver something yeah. very very quickly. Yeah. And so sometimes that's been the reason why my name has appeared more often than some people might want. Yeah.
2: And you've had a chance to write, write for a variety of different doctors and companion teams in your Yes, I, I'm trying
3: to work through more. I'm trying okay. to. I've with big finish. I've done. Written for the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth Doctors. i um, and done um, companion chronicles for the second, third and fourth. I'm missing the first. So it's a source of some frustration too. Okay. <laughs> um, and in the comic ships I've done the tenth and eleventh and books and eleventh. So there's a slight gap with Christopher still, but I haven't really done anything with him. Okay. So it would be nice to fill those gaps. Though it's also I'd love to do another Sylvester for instance, yeah. I'd love to do more Peter
2: Davison stuff. Yeah. You just mentioned the comic strip there. Um, you've been um, doing that in yeah, Doctor magazine for quite a while now as well. How did how did you get onto that? Was that a relate to Big Finish that you took on that writing? Uh,
3: it's before. Well, I did a couple of Big Finishes back in the day, yeah. uh, and then I went away for a long time um, because I was doing sitcoms and trying to get a film off the ground and writing Dead Ringers and stuff. Yeah. And then I sort of came back because. Um, came back to be finished with the beautiful people, they were just, I like, think they were desperate for someone really. <laughs> going, who can write a Tom Baker story really quickly? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the comic strips were sort of in the meantime. I did a story for the Doctor Who Annual, the storybook, which was commissioned by Clayton, and which started out as a text story, and then it was like he was going, that's such a, such a visual story, that should be a comic strip instead. So that's why I did the first comic strip. And then after that, for a couple of years, it was if I had an idea, I'd send it in or if they were going, we wanted sort of two party from Johnny, but they were using lots of different writers, and then when this show had a gap year with, the pretend gap year, um, they used one author for about two years, and that went very well, so they thought, we'll try and do the same thing again, have another author for about about the length of a graphic novel, Yeah. so I sort of took over with Matt Smith, which is great, because no one else has done Smith and yeah. Dr. Magazine, and I sort of, I'll be doing it until Christmas at least. Oh, okay. so I
2: remember, I remember, uh, yeah, it's been some great stories in the last, but well, I, I started getting Doctoring Magazine again at the beginning of the year. It's just been great to, to read your strips. Um, I particularly like the, the C.S. Lewis one. Um, the, that was you, wasn't it? That was, you that yeah. was, yes, that was
3: me. That was um, the, the Professor, the and the bookshop
2: or something, I, I found it slightly <laughs> ironic, um, given that um, the original kind of BBC study, which, uh, which was done in 61, 62, um, that was kind of leading up to Doctor Who, was very critical of C.S. Lewis's material. Um, and I just found it slightly ironic that, after all this time, you've now put C.S. Lewis into a Doctor Who strip, kind well,
3: of... I think um, there are there's similarities in sort of the way the stories work, that you have this Professor figure, you have Young kids yeah. getting caught up in adventures, and the, the, sort of, the main difference is that Doctor Who is science, yeah. or you know, it's, has scientific trappings, and yes, whereas science is all magic, yeah. And even also, Season knows is science fiction, yeah. Return to the silent platform yeah. has a magical element to yeah. it, which is, um, I think what the BBC would have found on 1962 because they've gone, This is you know, the age of the white ease of technology, we don't like unscientific stuff polluting yeah. our children's minds yeah. that I, story started out a mm. uh, long long time before that right. uh, as um, when Big Finish were doing the Unbound yeah. I was going oh if they asked if I was to do an Unbound what would I do yeah. and my idea was I'd do Doctor Who what if Doctor Who started in 1930 right. as a children's book written by uh, Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or E. Nesbitt or something yeah. and so it's that sort of thing it's the same show but not as a magical show.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, do you not find... I mean, it's often been said that Doctor Who is more science fantasy than science fiction anyway, and that there are, there are maybe ways of, of getting that magical element into the show, even though it is, like you say, primarily about science.
3: Well, there's an a old C.M. Arthur C. Clarke quote about sufficiently advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic, which is a bit of a cop-out. Yes, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, my preference is always for the science to be right, wherever yes. possible, and that doesn't mean it can't be awesome or or inspiring. Yeah, it just means anything which um, a fourteen-year-old a studying for his GCSE in physics, yeah. if, he, if they can spot something which is wrong, yeah, then I think you you need to rewrite the science. But I don't think it needs yeah. to be perfect, but I just think you should avoid anything which is obviously wrong. Yeah.
2: So uh, what can we expect from you, um, big finish wise, in, in the near future?
3: Uh, well, um, it's no secret that we've just recorded a Colin Baker story with his new companion yeah. Flip, who's played by Lisa Greenwood over there, yeah. the fantastic Lisa Greenwood, who we're very lucky to have, who will probably be far too successful to do big finishes in a couple of years. <laughs> I, I, I have absolutely no um, doubt of that. Yeah. Um, So that went, that was great, but um, I can't tell you anymore. No. I'll I'll get into trouble. Uh, What I can tell you about is um, next month we have a companion, there's a companion chronicle called, um, I think it's Tales from the Vault, Mm -hmm. which is the unit vault, where they keep artifacts and alien adventure, alien attacks, top two adventures. Um, So it's um, a bit. It'd be like an old jerk coat left yeah, yeah, yeah. over from the John Pertwee store. Right, okay. Or a space crystal left over yeah. from the Second Doctor store. And that has um, Daphne Ashbrook and Eugene Thoe. Right, in A okay. TV movie, playing different parts. Okay. Playing um, unit soldiers Ruth Madison and Charlie Sato, okay. But it also features cameo appearances from um, Peter Purvis, uh, Wendy Padbury, Katie Manning and Mary Tan. Wow, so, okay four companions, plus the two TV new companions, yeah. all in one companion chronicle in one hour. Sweet. So that's a, quite an, um, okay. an ambitious undertaking. Yeah. Uh, we also have, coming up, I don't know when it's being released, a thing called Guardians of Prophecy, which okay. is based on a 20-page um, detailed scene breakdown by Johnny Byrne, okay. written for 1985-ish, around okay. the time, for Colin Baker Doctor and the Perry, uh, which is a sort of it's half a sequel to Keeper of Chalk and okay. it's the return of the Melker.
2: Right, okay. Well. But
3: but obviously, but not... in Keeper of Chalk and you don't see a real Melker. No, you see either. the master. yeah. So these, this is the first time the Melker have actually properly appeared, yeah. or on audio anyway. Yeah. And because it's an audio, I've had to give them a voice, because yeah. otherwise, well, the, the synopsis has the, their master, the evil Malador, giving them instructions. Yeah. And so you need, you would expect them to go, Yes, the master, or something, and that's just a wonderful, traditional, very sort of robust storytelling. I think in about scene four, someone's dragged off to be thrown into the labyrinth as punishment, and they're shouting, no, not the labyrinth. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about how the story's pitched in terms of, it's very, very traditional, as it was in
2: 1985. Um, You mentioned Johnny Byrne there, obviously you have now with this new companion followed in his footsteps and that you wrote a character as a one-off that has then been taken on and, and become a, a companion like he did with, with Nyssa. Yes. yes. How, I mean, how does it feel? Kind of. Do, do you feel it's down to your writing and or, or more to do with the, the performance that Lisa gave in, in the studio that day? I think
3: it's... Um, n- it would be nice to think it was down to my writing but I think um, the character works. Yeah. You know, but I think it mostly... I. I if, much credit as possible to the actress, because yeah. during that recording she was just knocking lines out. She was just um, being very, very funny, yeah. quirky, and spot on. Not having to, you know, not having to give, sec- the director didn't have to give notes and go, "No, you've got it wrong." It yeah. was no, you're getting this straight away, yeah. straight off the bat. Yeah. And but making it funny and charming and very, very, very yeah. likable. Yeah. So the thing was, we've got to get this girl back.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, Maybe not in the same character, yeah. but we've got to get her back because she's going to be going to be huge. Um, but obviously, if you're going to get back, you might she might as well be the same character yes. than playing someone who's a bit similar with the same voice, yeah. but with a different names. So it, it, it was, and so it was. It was nice to be bring her back and to be the one who um, make, has a, joined the Doctor properly.
2: Yeah. Are you down to write any more stories for her, or is she now being kind of thrown out to whoever well, wants to write? It's
3: part of uh, you know, the, the three parts yep. mini seasons yep. that Big Finish do. Um, and I've been told the names of the other two authors, and that, but I can't really remember. Okay. Um, I can actually. Um, but, and then after that, who knows? Okay. I mean, it's going to depend on if people like, if yep. like those stories or, um, and if the actress is still available. Yes. So we'll see how it goes.
2: But you'd like to write more. Uh, format,
3: oh, it! I'd never say I wouldn't. Mean, I mean, I'd like to write a Mary Shelley one, they didn't ask me. Oh, I know. <laughs> I
2: know. But you, so, your, your immediate ambition to the future, um, trying to find a first Doctor thing that you can, that you can write, maybe?
3: <laughs> well, I've had this idea for ages, which um, they keep on turning down. Because <laughs> I think, and, and Keys and Mouse, yeah. you know, the Doctor Ian, Barbara, and Susan, they keep travelling with and they're going, you could actually slot in another episode that they land in a desert which would be called the, the Deserts of Doom or something because yeah. you hear the stuff in the story about the, gla- the glass cities of yeah. Baroness and they go I want to see that I want yeah. to have a bit more of yes. Um and they'd, they'd find a key which they think is there but it'd be a fake key or something yeah. and they bump into the void and you'd yeah. learn more about the... so I'd like to do um, that but I think that's one of those stories which is really good in my head <laughs> yeah. but they go do we really want to pay Terry Nation's
2: um, estate money yeah. To use the board. Yes, <laughs> um, this is always yeah. the issue with with stuff that he created. So. so yeah. I think
3: people would think that was a joke. I mean okay. it in deadly serious. Yeah. But I would just love to do a, a William Hartnell story anyway, because um, I've, I've done a tiny bit for Peter Purvis in this yeah. companion chronicle, but it would lovely to do something with William Russell, who was Godfather. Yeah. Um, or Caroline um, Ford, or
2: you know, Moira yeah. Oh yeah, fantastic, great. Well, I'm sitting in Toby Longworth's chair, yeah, uh, yeah, and he's no just come back. Um, but it's it's been, judged, right? yeah, he will, yeah. He will, yeah. It will shoot it's, you punk. it's been <laughs> great. <laughs> it's been great to talk to you, Johnny. Um, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much, Luke. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for spending a fairly significant amount of time just chatting about Big Finish. And I'm fascinated by what Big Finish get up to. I mean, there was a time when they were the only company making new Doctor Who. And yes, it was with past Doctors and so on, but they were able to take Doctor Who and the franchise to all manner of places. And even with the television series returning, Again, their stories are so inventive. and It's great how they kind of do, well, I'm not sure if this is the correct term, but future retro continuity. In other words, they use the modern-day series format with older Doctors. And they use the format used in modern-day Doctor Who, on telly, that is, to inform the way they tell previous Doctor stories. So with the 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th Doctor, and soon to be the 4th Doctor as well, you know you're kind of aware that it's all part of the same thing and it's all wonderful anyway luke jonathan thank you very much indeed for your time now next time trev and i will be back we'll be talking a little bit about season six trev and i spoke last week for the first time in quite a while and as a result we ended up talking for ages so we had to cut quite a bit of our discussion about season six. We were able to take a bit more of a relaxed view of the first seven episodes of season six and uh, hopefully that will be of interest to you. We'll also be talking about some other bits and pieces we're just not quite sure what yet. Don't forget the competition that we launched on Podcast 87 for the two books, The Man Who Invented Daleks and The Coming of the Terrafiles. You'll need to go back and take a listen to that podcast to hear the questions that you need to answer in order to win those really fantastic prizes. Don't forget to join us on the Doctor Who podcast forums. There's lots of discussion going on at the moment about season six. Now we're in the off-season, there's a few other conversations going on about Classic Who once again, which is, uh, which is always good to get involved in. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter, on twitter.com forward slash the DR Who podcast, where Trev and I come out with all manner of random stuff in terms of what we're doing. Uh, it's usually got a Doctor Who-related subject, but not always. Anyway, hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We'll catch up with you again next week. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.